Which tasks can safely be handed off to the machines and which need to stay in human hands? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Thursday, May 18th, and this is In the Moment. If you browse the sci-fi movie section on your favorite streaming service, you'll probably see artificial intelligence in a villainous role. But Skynet and the Matrix aside, AI could be more helpful than harmful. That is, if it's used correctly. We're revisiting conversations about the roles artificial intelligence could play in your life. We'll hear from the digital doctor about how AI could make your healthcare more efficient. And we'll talk with an artist about how he uses AI as a creative partner. We're broadcasting today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Dr. Robert Walker is a professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He's the author of 300 articles and six books, including the best-selling The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. Dr. Walker spoke with Lori in April. They discussed how AI could change the nature of clinical care. Are big healthcare uh, systems, universities, research institutes working closely with the companies? Because it seems to me that how this develops, it is essential that the right people are in the room. What can you tell me about partnerships that you've seen that are, are making you optimistic? Yeah, I've done some work with Microsoft, which is right now kind of the main player. They partnered with the uh, the company OpenAI that developed ChatGPT and then ultimately now GPT-4. And I have to say I've been quite impressed with them. They have been quite attentive to working closely with physicians and with medical organizations. They've just announced a few partnerships with health systems and with Epic, which is the big electronic health record that, that many systems, including Sanford, has. Um, you know, it's been interesting because I worked with Google and Microsoft in the mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, when both companies decided they were going to get into healthcare and build electronic health records. And both of them folded their efforts a couple of years later. I remember uh, the CEO of Google coming meeting with the advisory board I was on and saying, you know, we're getting out of healthcare. This is too complicated for us. And so I said, wow, that's pretty complicated. Google yeah. is finding it too complicated. I think what, you know, now that these companies, whether it's Microsoft or OpenAI or, or Google or Amazon are getting back into it, they're doing it with their eyes much wider open than, than they were 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago, they naively believed that if you build the technological tools, transforming medicine was really no harder than transforming retail or how you bought your books or how you got your entertainment or how, how you hailed a cab. And I think the companies now have seen enough about healthcare that they understand that it is very different on, on all sorts of levels. The, the privacy issues make data sharing harder. Um, fail fast. I, you know, I live in the Silicon Valley. Fail fast is one of the mantras. Uh, but yeah. fail fast is fine with a restaurant app and not that good if you have a dead patient. Nope. And, um, and you know, you, so I think they are all going in recognizing they better be into the long haul that just developing a snazzy tool is not enough. You have to understand the way doctors and patients and nurses work and integrate it into the workflow. And so it's, this is not going to be a tomorrow thing. It's going to take several years. But 
to have a tool that can, as dazzlingly as it as it does, interpret information, um, you know, read over a paper and give you a summary of the paper, listen whatever whatever the equivalent of listening is to a doctor-patient conversation, and turn that into the doctor's notes so the doctor doesn't have to sit there being a very unhappy data entry clerk. Yeah. Um, you know, figure out how to, to schedule things in the operating room. Those things are, you know, are now the capability is there, and I think the companies have a are, are establishing better partnerships and having a much. Uh, they they understand the time horizon much better than they did in the beginning. Yeah, here's something I've been turning over and over in my head from an education standpoint. So, I'm one of those journalists and writers who diagrammed sentences in college, two generations from now. Uh, I will not be around to tell people that their grammarly is incorrect and probably language will change a little bit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In healthcare, that might be a very bad thing indeed. So what I'm wondering is when we get to what a med student needs to know, I don't need my doctor to be able to do all the computations in her brain but I need to know that somebody still knows how to do those computations because if the, the, the data is bad, I'm going to have a bad outcome. Do you see what I'm getting at there? This course, big question yeah. about what students need to have memorized and what they can just look up either on their phone or, or through their use of AI tools. But I need to know that somebody still knows how to do this two, three generations from now. How can we make sure that we're building a system that works for us in that way? Yeah, I think it's an open question whether someone will need to know to do that two or three generations now in the same way that, you know, how much do we really need to know about, uh, uh, you know, the kinds of math that we all learned in the old, old days since we all have calculators in our pockets now. There are certain things that we will probably give over to the computers if the computers are 100% reliable in doing them. And the question then is how do we – a couple of questions. One is – how do we repurpose that time and energy? And in a hopeful world, you would say, I don't really want my doctor to be doing all that calculating. I want my doctor to be demonstrating his or her empathy, listening carefully to my problems, interpreting the data, uh, explaining things to me in a way that makes sense. And the hope is that that happens. The, you know, the question is, will patients gravitate toward systems that probably will be less expensive where you may not even see a doctor a lot of the time where a lot of the answers will come from the technology. But I think the point you're making in terms of kind of the degradation of skills is a very important point because in healthcare, the AI is not going to be perfect anytime soon. There's going to need to be a human partner to the AI, a human supervisor, uh, because it's it's it simply is not going to be right 100% of the time, and we see that already with with the AI systems, and that creates a set of problems. One is how do you, the one you're articulating, which is how do you train people to be still able to do the task when the AI is wrong or failing them or not available, and the second is the driverless car problem, which is if you look at the Tesla training manual, it says you know even though when you put it in driverless mode. The, the driver needs to stay alert. Well, that sounds good, except if the car is going to make a turn into a concrete barrier. I don't know a driver in the universe who's going to be alert enough to catch that in a nanosecond. And there have been several high-profile crashes of airplanes where when you really distill down what happened is the technology failed and the pilot no longer was able to fly the plane 
because the only plane they knew how to fly was the technologically enabled plane. So I think you are articulating a really important problem for those of us in the training space, which is how do we get our young people to use the technology appropriately and but also have a healthy dose of respect for the possibility that it will fail and be able to you know, grab the steering wheel and do the right thing if the technology is not providing them the right answer. That's a tough question. I think we're going to have to all be working that one out in the next yeah. uh, over the next five or ten years. It's like that scene from the movie, I think, is Independence Day, where the communications go down, but the Morse code operators who can click on the dits and the das, we showed you, aliens, we, we're human beings, right, and right. we still know how to do it old school. Um, where exactly. is that balance? Because as to your point, um, when digital records first came out, all of a sudden your doctor is on a computer, they're not looking you in the eye. Patients want the computers to help bring back the humanity in their relationship between doctors. And we want the data crunching to save our lives. And we want it to be cheaper. Yeah. We don't <laughs> Are yeah. we asking yeah. too much there or not? No, it's perfect. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. what we should be asking for. And, and believe me, you know, being on the doctor's side of it, that's what I want too. I mean, yeah. it, it, it has to be what is the system and the system is the combination of people and technology that delivers the best health and the best health care and the best access and does it in the most equitable way and does it at a price that doesn't bankrupt individuals and governments and businesses. And it's very clear that technology has to have a major role in that. Um, it's just as clear to me, at least, but I may be rooting too much for the humans, <laughs> that that's going to involve partnerships between people and technologies. You know, the malpractice system will have a vote as well. There's going to need to be a human that ultimately takes responsibility for, uh, for the decision. But, you know, what does this look like 20 years from now? I don't know. It's a really – I don't think any of us – very few of us could have predicted GPT-4 uh, two years ago. Uh, it is really a sea change in the ability of the computer to, uh, to do what it does. And so – you know, yes, I see medicine as a highly human endeavor. The empathy is incredibly important. The eye contact is important. Listening and explaining is incredibly important. But I think we're going to have to be flexible to try to understand because there will be things that the computer can do that that we can't even envision now. This is an old problem in technology. Henry Ford was reputed to have said if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Yeah. They had no ability to even think about what the technology called an automobile could do until there was one. And I have to say, until I played with the GPT, I really didn't understand what it could possibly do. And so I think I'm pretty humble about my ability to predict 20 years from now. I'm better at two years from now. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe the AI will figure out what things are going to be like 20 years from now. Well, and this is the great um, dream. This is the cancer moonshot. This is the we have how many pieces of data on patients and, and tumors and how medicine interacts with things and rare diseases. And in my mind, I'm just like, we are about to break through. And some of the things that my family has suffered from and lost their lives to, this, if we get this right, it changes, yeah, so. it changes yeah. everything, right? That's Yeah, I hope so. I, you know, I'm sorry to hear about your family. I think that there are things we've been talking about sort of the clinical delivery of care yeah. in terms of the discovery side of it. 
a version of this will happen as well, the ability of the computer to predict which drug is going to work better for a given patient because of the way their genes are, are, are sort of, you know, that has been around the corner. We call that precision medicine. That's been around the corner for 25 years. Uh, but this will make that realer faster. Now, whether it will change the nature of, of how we treat cancer, for example, in the next year, I don't know. But yeah. it certainly gets us to, to the promised land sooner than we would without it if we're thoughtful about integrating it with the, with the humans and partnering uh, in a way that makes, brings out the best of both. How important is it for providers to learn how to communicate the facts to people in a trustworthy way and fight back bipartisanship and disinformation and, and outright you know, sabotage from people who want to do harm to the system and to individuals? Yeah, I think COVID pointed out how tricky all of that is in, in our our particular society. And I think social media has made it worse because everybody has a megaphone. And uh, and in fact, you know, there are media outlets for whom their incentive system is to be as incendiary and, and uh, you know, uh, sort of go off the rails as much as possible. And that's how they get eyeballs and that's how they, they make money. And so... You know, the digital, as always, is a double-edged sword. It, it creates – I mean, I like to believe I had about 300,000 followers on Twitter, mm -hmm. and it allowed me to communicate my view of the facts and my interpretation of the facts to a lot of people who seem to value that. And they saw me as a trustworthy source who had real credentials and seemed like you know a reasonable person. And a lot of people just said, this is too complicated for me. You just tell me what you're doing, and I'll do that. And I took that as yeah. I, I kind of like that. I thought that was that, that was was a, a nice bit of praise. But the same technology that was allowing me to, in an unfiltered way, get out to you know millions and millions of people allows someone who has different motives or has a different view of the facts to get out as well. And so, as with all things technology, it's double edged. And, and I'm I have to say, having come through wherever we are now in COVID. I'm a little bit, I'm probably even more concerned than I was before because the folks that want to use these technology tools to promote disinformation, they are pretty good at it. And I think they've learned some lessons during COVID that they'll probably use the next time there's something, there's a crisis that, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, like, how do you combat disinformation? The answer is I do the best I can to put out good information and hope that people follow me. But you know, it's a little bit of an echo chamber. The people that choose to follow me or listen to you are different than the people who are vulnerable to misinformation, and they have their media channels, and everybody can choose their own adventure. So it's a daunting problem, and I certainly I, I have not come up with the answer to it other than to continue to do the best we all can. That was Lori's interview with Dr. Robert Wachter from April. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. Imagine if you contained all of the information on the Internet and could answer any question or prompt that was posed to you. That's sort of how chatbots powered by artificial intelligence work. But as Google learned from their chatbot, Bard, these programs can still make very costly mistakes. Our February Tech Talk roundtable helped us parse through the impacts and risks of artificial intelligence. Plus, we asked our experts if TikTok is spying on us. 
Amos Asip is Chief Security Officer from Exigent Solutions in Sioux Falls. Jeff Litterick is a network and security architect for the state of South Dakota. Here's their discussion with Lori. Let's start with Amos, who has decided to ask the bot what we should talk about. So tell us a little bit about how we've invited AI into our conversation today. Well, you know, I knew I knew the topic. And uh, since we're talking GPT, mm-hmm. chat GPT, um, I thought it would be interesting to ask chat GPT itself. Uh, I, I told it that we had 10 minutes to discuss and we're going to be discussing about you. And I asked, what are the most important things that, uh, that we should discuss? And it came back with a, uh, a seven-itemed list, uh, it pretty well laid out. But I'm, I'm a little bit afraid that uh, if we start here, do we have the underlying foundation of what ChatGPT is? We don't yet. So okay. let's start there for people who have just been hearing it in the background, you know, and now they tune into this hour because they're like, we're going to explain it. Sure. Explain it. <laughs> so we've, we've all been hearing about AI, right? Artificial intelligence, uh, sometimes it's referred to as machine learning. And then there's some other marketing terms that go with that as well. Uh, But this is kind of the next evolution of that. Um, This is a quality. uh, So the GPT is generative pre-trained transformer, which is a funny term for Mm -hmm. basically something that has read much of the internet uh, many books, many uh, papers that have been written, uh, and has just learned everything that it can from ingesting all of that information. And utilizing that, it's able to, in a conversational format, be able to respond to questions and comments and uh, queries, that sort of stuff. Uh, it's also able to do that in a manner in which you don't have to uh, give it the full context each time. It can remember what the last question is. It can associate what your next question is based on the context of what the answer was, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's a huge leap forward in what we used to think of chatbots like, how can I help you with your phone bill today? You right. know, that pops right. up on Press the Press one, yeah. Right, yeah. Jeff, anything else you want to add for context about how these things work in our lives right now? Well, I kind of view it, as, um, especially ChatPT, as the last of the creative AIs. And what I mean by that is everyone's kind of, or most people have seen the art AI, where you can give the AI a description and it actually paints a picture <coughs> or creates an image for you. There's a music AI that does the same thing with music. And what Chat does is for language. Um, it is a kind of a creative AI. Um, and it's all encompassing of language. And one of the things most people don't realize is it's not English language, but programming language. It's any type of language. You could actually ask ChatPT to write a program for you that will work uh, because it scurs every type of, of word type thing. You can ask it to create essays, novels. It's a really quite creative thing. And you understand why Google and their search engine is so threatened by it because for the first time you can come in a conversation, you can ask information and it can give you back beyond what Google even can today is it understands the context of why you're asking stuff. Mm. So, so this is more than asking what the weather is. This is planning a radio segment for us. So well, go the, ultim- yeah, the ultimate thing I, I like to say, because this was what Google kind of gives with their one is what they want to do is all these AIs are niche AIs. They're very narrow focus. Chat BT on language, our AI on images, music AI on music, is that in the end, you will be able to, especially through the Google side, is tell it, I want to create a story about a 
boy lost in London, being pursued by terrorists, and big explosions. And <clears throat> ChatGPT will write a screenplay, send it to the art AI, which will then create the images, which sends it to the music AI, which creates the soundtrack, and you have a completed movie at the end. Um, output totally by AI. So that's the ultimate destination, and and that's where it's moving to. And there's lots of implications, security, information-wise, pr- privacy-wise, about all this stuff. But it's a humongous topic. Yeah. So people that I've talked to, Amos, are using it as, you know, uh, give me a, a social media plan for my business and, you know, an editorial content calendar for my blog. Yep. And then they let the the device gets started and then they go through and they massage it, you know, write it in right. their own voice, kind of right. make change. So using it as a big put together a presentation, put together a lesson plan for high school students for a substitute teacher. And uh, we can get into the scary things, but most people are actually using it right now for fun. And then also to save time to sort of help the help the robot give me all the, the mundane tasks done so I can really focus on what I want this presentation to be. How are you hearing people use yeah, it? Yeah, that's, that's the, the biggest things. You know, copywriting really is what it, what it comes down to. And you can, uh, you can feed it information. It can learn from you uh, such that it, it can start to understand how you phrase things or what your tone of voice is in, in that copywriting. And it, it's, it's capable of doing that. In fact, it has some built-in stuff that if you ask for an answer to come back in the format of, say, a, the last one I saw was a stoned surfer dude, mm-hmm. the uh, information that does come back will be in that format. Those sorts of man- mannerisms, uh, phrases, uh, idioms that they use will all be in- incorporated into that. So it's, it's very useful for, for writing copy but that also means that students, as most of us have heard, can use, use it, it for to writing copy. Write and copy, right? <laughs> so, and and because it's generally unique, it's tough yeah. to find. Although there are, they are starting to develop ways to understand if ChatGPT wrote this. Uh, you could write, say, give me a three hundred word uh, paper on this topic, uh, and it will spit it out for you. Mm-hmm. And it's usually very good. Yeah. It's not always correct. But it's usually very good. So what did it tell you we should talk about today? What was like uh, some of the things that it said, yep, so I have to cover this? Uh, well, it gave me seven bullet points. It says, first, we should talk about what OpenAI and GPT are, uh, and then specifically what ChatGPT is. Uh, the third item was how it was trained and the performance and what it, uh, what it does. Um, the use cases the limitations and ethical considerations, uh-huh. which is important, right? Yeah. You don't want people to be able to go out there and say, hey, tell me how to build a, a bomb, and then it gives you back, or, or meth, right? What's the formula? Although that's available on the internet, this would make it an easier place to find it. Uh, the future of AI and chat GPT, and then uh, summarize the key points as discussed. Uh, oh. <laughs> so honestly, this is great copywriting if you wanted to put together a format for, for discussing. It doesn't match any of my notes. It's though. probably... I mean, some. <laughs> so so I, obviously the ethical... Um, conversation is something that we're we're very interested in but i'm also interested in um how this intersects with you know hate speech the first amendment this this different countries have different rules so the rules in china are going to be very different from the rules in the u.s so jeff is this is this technology specific to different political environments 
they have tuned it and they have put in um, uh, like firewalls within there so it doesn't do certain things. A, a good example is you're not supposed to be able to use it to write malware. Remember, it can write any program oh, God. programs or languages. <laughs> but hackers have already jailbroke it to be able to write malware. And it can write really good malware fairly easy and fairly fast for you. Um, same thing with different countries. They, they can pit in barriers, but it seems people have been finding ways around those barriers and stuff also, too. So um, it's kind of like a little bit of an arms race with the AI. And the one thing it cannot do, and people have been trying this in my group. A lot of people have been trying to use it as a DM, a dungeon master, a game master to run RPG sessions. Sure. And it actually does it kind of. But <laughs> the thing is, it doesn't have a memory. It doesn't remember what you did in the past. Uh, so, and I think that was on purpose to prevent a lot of really bad uses where um, it remembers stuff that you've done before. It, so it's not perfect and it doesn't have a memory, but it is like the other creative AIs. Like the, if you've seen the pictures, the art ones I've mm -hmm. done and the music, it is very good. It's not perfect, but it is very good. One thing to mention, too, which I found interesting off of, off of Jeff mentioning the jailbreak is that it has the concept of self-preservation and self-awareness. And so more than we do. Through, yeah, well, more than you would expect. <laughs> more than humans do too. at this point. Um, yeah, no kidding. Um, but through that jailbreaking, um, through threatening that they are either going to shut them off or pull the plug or make them, you know, turn it off. Uh, they have found ways of getting around the safeguards that Jeff was mentioning sure. of keeping them from being able to produce a malware. And, uh, and so it gets scared, especially if you are authoritative with it and you continue to tell it what to do. Uh, it, it eventually gives in. Uh, if you're interested in that, look up the Dan module for ChatGPT. Uh, really fascinating. And this is where we get into the Terminator stuff where they start taking over, right? Yeah. Uh, we're on the brink of something. I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't know that anybody knows what it is. But now how we can't imagine living without the Internet, I think we're just about to the point where we can't imagine living without AI. We're on the brink of something. We're not really sure what it is. feels mm -hmm. exciting, too. It, it feels I, scary. I hope it's good. When you were saying, <laughs> tell me how to build a bomb or, you know, don't shut me down. But cancer research. I mean, there mm -hmm. are all kinds of things that if we put – the machine learning. I remember a Frontline or a Nova episode, Jeff, that um, had two women who were trying to figure out breast cancer research at a major, I think, MIT or someplace. And they basically came in with machine learning and said, help us figure out why these women are getting tumors. And they solved the problem in like two months versus 20 years. What are some of the exciting potentials that you see for open AI or this kind of work, broadly speaking? Well, one thing I want to mention is it can't truly create new like theories and new research on itself. It it knows what it knows by uh, basically learning the entirety of human knowledge up to this point. Everything we've learned, it knows, but it doesn't go out and learn new things. Um, at least at this point, and and that's and that's the key part. It's great at finding patterns. It's great at uh, analyzing you know, more data than any human could ever uh, read in their entire lifetime in a few seconds and storing it and being able to regurgitate it and, and use it to create new stuff, right? But it's still based off what we've already done. So mm -hmm. 
Uh, the cancer one was great. I, I saw that. But, um, you know, it's taking all the research everyone's ever done and then looking at the pans and figuring this stuff out. It's just faster than any human can do it. But it's nothing new. It's not going to invent the absolute new um, uh, thing that just doesn't exist yet, right? Um, though they are getting close. There's actually AIs that are now creating chips themselves, right? Uh, writing their own chips, writing their own CPUs and stuff like that. But it's still based off what humans have discovered up to this point. Um, it cannot go and figure out the um, uh, um, major ther physics theories by itself without some intuition that this, it just doesn't have at this point. So, so I want to make sure we talk about TikTok and in the context of this, when we, we like who owns this technology, who has it. What you mentioned, an arms race, Amos. Um, who gets to control it? Who gets to turn it on and off? And that brings us to uh, surveillance balloons and TikTok and what China is doing and the firewalls that China has on censorship are different than the firewalls that the U.S. has. You know, Governor Kristi Noem can say state employees can't have TikTok on their phones, but you can't say that a private citizen can't have TikTok on their phone, for example. So we're dealing with very different rules. Um, when we look at TikTok in some of these businesses that are run by Chinese companies or have connections and affiliations to other nations. Are you scared of them? Are you worried about them? Is it overblown political talk? It's uh, maybe a combination somewhere in the middle in okay. there, right? So we don't really know that TikTok by itself, the app itself, is a security threat. There's some suspicion. There has been for a long time, ever since it came out, the fact that it was created by a Chinese company, the, there's been um, some reasons why people say that that by itself is a security threat. Um, and then, it, you know, that the app itself actually asks for a lot of permissions on your phone that seem like maybe it, it shouldn't need. Um, and then there's the psychological part where it is influencing people into uh, viewing specific TikToks that might uh, have misinformation or might not or might play into their echo chamber of truth and not provide a wide variety of information to be on the safe side I've I've steered away from TikTok I, I don't uh, never put it on my phone I haven't used it personally there's just too many questions about that we don't want to end up at the point where we find out oh it generally is a security threat or it genuinely is uh, and then it's too late because it's captured all of your information especially when it comes to phones. There's just too much personal information on a phone. That was Lori Walsh's Tech Talk Roundtable from February. She spoke with Amos Asip, who's the chief security officer at Exigent Solutions, and Jeff Litterick, who's a network and security architect for the state of South Dakota. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Jackie Hendry, in for Lori Walsh. How are artificial intelligence tools and augmented reality changing the process of art making? And how is it changing how you experience art? A spring art exhibition in Sioux Falls invites gallery goers to use an app on their phones in order to view a computer-generated composite look at the world. That's according to artist Walter Ports. Here's his full interview with Lori in May when the exhibition first opened. I mean, it's obviously it's fantastic. I think that... Um, being able to express something that hasn't been done much before, or if at all, I'm not sure. I haven't seen anybody doing this type of work. To be given the space to do it and and see it grow within a community and let people experience it and to watch that experience is going to be really interesting. Yeah. All right. So what is the experience? What is the show? So Submersion is a show of 
work of mine I've been doing for a while. Um, about ten, eight or 10 months ago, I started working with AI. Um, I've been a photographer for 25 years. I've been doing digital photo collage for 25 years. Um, but I started integrating that into a process that allowed me to use both AI and my photographs and my own designs to create um, work that was not that was a partnership with technology as opposed to letting technology create something or doing something all myself, this idea that we could explore what was possible with technology, bring that back out, the, what, what the artificial intelligence can create, and then do something physical with that and layer more human touch on top of that. So it really becomes kind of a more robust image to begin with but then also leveraging technology to take that image and create virtual augmented reality experiences. Mm -hmm. So the artwork is stagnant on the wall, like you can have a piece just hanging on the wall that exists. Um, but in addition to that, you can scan a QR code and pair it with that image. And what will happen is that that image will become three-dimensional in your space. You can walk through it, around it, you can film it, you can photograph it. Um, and it just becomes a totally different experience. So the center of the gallery will kind of be the three-dimensional space. So people, you know, usually walk around the outside of a gallery and look at the, look at the work and the middle of the gallery is kind of open. So what we do now is you're, you're going to see the work. If you scan the barcode and look at the work and turn around, the gallery space will be filled with that artwork in three dimensions. Is the audience looking through their phone or do they have a headset on? What are the different ways... At that the audience can experience it. Yep. So at this point, it newer technology. Um, mm -hmm. As of right now, it's going to all be phone-based um, or tablet-based. Um, so you want to bring your iPhone with you or, or whatever. Eventually, augmented reality will be something you could experience with a headset or whatever. But the idea of using a phone, you know, it's something we all have and it's there. Um, you'll be prompted. The first image you look at it will prompt you to download an app quick. But once you have that, you can look at all of the images. This is pushing art in a new direction, but it's also familiar to you. Go back to the early days of your photography revolution from I rolled film in a dark room yeah. in college and then developed it in that dark room. And then Photoshop and, and Lightroom and those things came along. And that was, you know, I went in a different direction and I wasn't doing photography anymore. I was doing journalism you're in that the heat of that transition. Do you sure. see similarities? Yeah. So, one of the things I'm seeing a lot of, um, and and I'm I'm purposefully pushing the boundary and the conversation when I have conversation with artists. A lot of artists have pushback um, because they feel like AI is copying images, um, and I, I think that what they don't understand is AI is actually learning from images, like you and I would learn it rarely ever comes up with something unless you particularly focus on a, a particular type of work. It rarely comes up something that you've ever seen before. So backing up a little bit, the pushback I see now, I saw a lot in the mid to late 90s when I was scanning those negatives from the darkroom and starting to pull apart images in Photoshop and starting to edit contrast and color and all of those things. Um, you know, the art school's and all of the artists in the art school were like, that's not real art. You know, that's not real photography. You're not a creative. Digital will never go anywhere. And, you know, I was one of the first people to embrace digital cameras when they came out. My entire professional career as a photographer was done with digital cameras. I still shoot film, mm -hmm. um, but and I appreciate what it is. It slows me down. 
But the reality is, is like, whether we love this technology or hate this technology, it's here and it's not going to go away. So my question is, how do we challenge this technology into being more than just technology creating something, right? How do we leverage our own assets, bring those to the technology, create something, bring that result out, and then do more with it? You know, I, I think, uh, you know, as a painter, you might reference a photograph, right? And then you paint the photograph. Like there are different levels and sets of things that happen. So you might have a camera, then you have a print of the photograph, then you sketch that with pencil, then you add paint and, you know, you maybe add more to it than what exists in the photograph originally. All of that's part of the process. And I think that creating that history and that texture um, and that well, we talked about provenance, mm -hmm. right? So I'm feeding images in having it output images, merging those with other images of mine, putting it back into the AI, pulling it back out again. So you create this, This you said providence earlier when we were chatting, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great word, yeah. but I, I think of it in terms of uh, a genealogy or a family tree yeah. of images because really like you merge multiple images together. So it really spreads out like a tree mm -hmm. in my mind, like all of the stuff that came to making this one image, yeah. you know, and all of that could be mixed in a different way to create a totally different image. Um, or, or result. And then taking that and making it into something that's three-dimensional is kind of fascinating. Is the technology learning? Because you said it's a collaboration between you and the tech, and you're answering back to it, Yeah. maybe in more than one way, but in the, the very basic way of saying, nope, not that, I wanted this. Is it learning from you then what you want as an artist in some way so that next time you do a project, it will start figuring out and therefore it will go faster? Um, I don't know as it's that to that point yet. Okay. I mean, I, and I, I don't know as I would want it to go faster because I think you find things in the process. Just yeah. like when you're, if you were painting something out of your mind, you know, or not even out of your mind, you just start painting on canvas. You find these fragments and these things that are kind of wonderful and elegant and you utilize those as they come about, you know. So as you make a brush stroke, depending on the type of artist you are, you may not know what's going to happen. You make a brush stroke, you scrape that with a palette knife okay, look at the way that this texture or this color interplayed. And you're like, I like that. And I don't necessarily want to give up that that random part of finding the work. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, right. that's kind of the way I think about it. Um, I do think there is, I don't know how much it's learning from my language or if I'm adapting to its language. Sure. You know, I think that's where it's kind of interesting is like starting to, understand how to get predictable, semi-predictable results, mm -hmm. but also kind of the wonderful exploration of it is really interesting when you get something unexpected. What kind of experience do you want the audience to have that takes it from beyond a party trick mm -hmm. and a fun Friday night to an art experience in a gallery? Well, I think that, you know, depending on the mindset of the person that's yeah. going into it, I think that what I've, I'm seeing and what I'm thinking about, not just as an artist, but how uh, particularly the AI stuff, that conversation is one conversation, but um, the augmented reality side of things where you're actually able to create spaces right. and show things, I really start to think about how this could impact so many aspects of our life, education. Um, I was at the Smithsonian. I scanned a Rodin sculpture there with a with my phone, and I can implement put that into an augmented reality. So you could have an art uh, history class where you could actually look at the work in person mm -hmm. using augmented reality, or you could have a history class and you could look at 
And one of the things I saw there was Thomas Jefferson's writing table, right? You could look at that in person, in real life. So education, um, medicine, you know, you want to describe a problem with the heart to your your patients, you know, or right. something like that, being able to show them a three-dimensional rendering of the heart and show them what's happening might be really interesting and fascinating and help you educate your your patients, you know? Yeah. So there's all kinds of ways that this, in marketing and, you know, there's kind of the obvious stuff, but I think that the technology, throughout history, technology has bled through from the arts into the real world, yeah. whether it's lithography and printmaking, which then became you know, manufacturing of processors for computers and all of those things. Like, it's part of the process of learning and evolution of, of technology and exper human experience. What themes do you return to again and again? When I think of you, one of the things I think of is the human face, the human body, the human form in photography and finding beauty in unexpected, um, unexpected humans and uh, in unexpected ways through lighting, through... So expression. Yeah. So yeah, what themes do you come back to again and again? Um, my career was built really primarily on what I was the best at. My not only was I, I feel like I was the best at when I was photographing, um, but it was also the thing both that I was personally best at and was one of the best at doing, which is creating portraits that stripped away all of the pretense of the human being and looked honestly at them. And part of that was not so much artistic as it was social, like how yeah. you how you come to that image, how you present yourself to that person and engage with that person. That work, you can't not see that in the work I'm producing now yeah. because it's literally, I'm feeding those images in to inform what you're seeing from me. Mm. Um, so when you see the images, a lot of them, most of them have human figures in them most of them on some level resemble the portraits that I take. So that that's almost inescapable for me. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that totally answered your question, but... It does, because then it also is the the intersection of human and technology here. Humans yeah. altered by technology. So when I see a person, am I seeing a real person or am I seeing something that started out as a real person and then has been altered to be something else? I yeah. don't, I'm not going to know that. Right, yeah, and and, you know... That's one of the curiosities of AI is yeah. that literally you can produce images that look, you can't tell me that you think it's not a real person, and it is not a real person. This person doesn't exist, yeah. right? Um, the other thing, going back to your question now that I'm thinking about it a little more, throughout the history of me creating art from those first Photoshop scans that I was starting to cut apart mm -hmm. and edit, the idea of human and technology I call it submersion because because you're being submerged into this, forced into this relationship with technology. Mm -hmm. And that's something you will see consistently in my generated work because not it, it's reflective of the fact that I and a machine are working together to create something. So there's a lot of, um, in the work I've been producing, there's a lot of that visible in the work, you know, whether it's people with, antiquated or non-existent technology yeah. in the photograph or as part of them um, or as part of the process to get to the point where we see the image we see. So yeah. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting journey to find each image. What questions do you want the audience members to ask themselves 
when they're in this space interacting with your work? Uh, you know, I think that really just the broader conversation that's happening right now is really important. And I do feel that. I, I, I don't want to dismiss the concerns about AI. I am also frightened, right? Yeah. Like, I, I, and I'm full on in it. But my thought is, if I embrace this and understand it, I can at least use it to inform how I move forward in this world where it will be everywhere. It's already being used to write grant proposals and emails and create you know, content, and that's not going away. So do I want to exist in a space with no technology? Because that's gonna be the other option, right? So do you want to understand it and get to know it? Or do you want to pretend it doesn't exist? And I'm okay with both of those. Like if that's okay. where you want to be, I often think, man, I just wanna throw all the devices away and go you know, make sculptures in the forest or something, because <laughs> it is frightening and it is overwhelming. Um, but I really, like I love that I'm challenging you, particularly artists right now, to think about this in terms of this is the future, it is happening, how do we, how do we, what are the positives and what are the negatives, right? So we, we talk a lot about the negative side of things. One of the things I really think is fascinating, fascinating about it is anything in my mind happened in music in the early or mid 2000s, anything that breaks down barriers to access for creatives is really important. A lot of education in the arts is centered around going to a university Many, many people don't have access to that, don't have time for that, don't have money for that. And being able to conceptualize something and put it into a, a machine that can then output your concepts in a way that illustrates what you're trying to get across is the democratization of art. Like it, it's beyond everything else we've ever done, right? So yes, that means that people that have spent their entire lives learning to oil paint now could be frustrated that someone can create a better piece of work aesthetically than they can with no effort. Um, and that's really frightening. And I totally get that. But what I will say from what I experienced in photography is digital photography became photography. There are more photos taken in the last minute than in the first hundred years of photography, right? That doesn't mean that film is dead. People are creatives are still using film. There is an appreciation for it at a level that's far beyond the appreciation for digital photography. And this access to art will eventually, as it reaches mass, whatever its, its mass is, critical mass is, will lead to more profitable arts. I truly believe that. If you can see cool stuff, you start to really learn the language, and then you see something in person like a Rembrandt or a painting down here at Rayfeld's or you know, work in a gallery like um, Rose and Eugene, and you can start to say, oh, this is made by hand. This is different, and you have an appreciation for aesthetics that you didn't have, never even thought you'd have access to, never crossed anybody's mind before now. So it's really fascinating to me, and I think ultimately it will all sort itself out. But um, as of right now, you know, it's a big, big conversation. Hypothetically, if you create a physical piece of art 
with the augmented reality, can I buy that as a patron, take it home, and you could change the augmented reality every year, and that, and I could I could pay you I could subscribe, that's an as it were, thought. to say yeah every I'm going to pay Walter Ports you know fifteen dollars a month to change this experience for me, but it's it's my experience, it's my piece of art, and it's hanging on my wall. Right. And then every month I get a new vision. Not that that would be the economic model anybody would right, go right, for. Right, no, no. But, but well, even if it wasn't just your exclusive experience, if right. you buy a piece of mine, mm -hmm. you get an experience that cons constantly evolves. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a project for a, a, a big mural locally that would... Um, have a QR code on it that would create an augmented yeah. reality experience that would change. And to do that on a, uh, it was really interesting. I mean, it's a great question and, and a fascinating, fascinating solution, I think, that that could be very interesting. And, uh, you know, you think about art in mass, right? Like right. you buy, you know, I could create, a, you know, a limited edition of 100 posters and people that got those 100 posters would have a changing augmented reality experience. Right. That's pretty fascinating. You create a mural downtown, you create an experience, something happens politically, and you change what people see. They, everybody meets. Right. Now you have a gathering. Now you have a community experience because people have gathered at the mural to see what the artist has to say about this. Right. Yeah. Here we yeah. go. I Hold mean, on for the ride. <laughs> and, 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 you know, as of right now, it's not just stagnant images. Like, you can put movement right. into this. You can yeah. put sound into this. Like, I... I I'm not doing that on this show, right? Um, but I have created already pieces that um, allow you to touch a point on the screen and a piece of audio would play. Yeah. So the idea that you could, I mean, yeah, I'm just experiencing with the technology and my own artwork yeah. right now, but but from, a, from a, a statement standpoint, you could really do some amazing work yeah. with that combination of things in mind. And it's accessible to almost everybody, you know, as long as you've got a... Uh, phone and you know I mean you could do some fascinating street art installations you know yeah. where you literally scan a QR code and it comes to life and becomes this thing yeah. um, a message or a experience or whatever that is that's our show today we hope that it served you tomorrow we'll be talking dinosaurs fossils extinction and climate change of the past and present I'm Jackie Hendry in for Lori Walsh thank you for listening